Just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to Sidebar Forever. If you like the show, please subscribe to us at SidebarForever.com as well as share episodes of the podcast on your social media. That way, new listeners can find us as well. Here on Sidebar Forever, there's nothing, nothing we love better than a good old-fashioned thriller. And the 1980s had no shortage of them. Today's episode is a playback review of the 1983 action thriller, Blue Thunder, starring Roy Scheider, Daniel Stern, Candy Clark, and Malcolm McDowell. The movie is about an air support pilot for the Metropolitan Police Department, aka Los Angeles County, who gets involved in a conspiracy while testing a high-tech combat helicopter for the military. The chopper's nickname is, of course, Blue Thunder. On the podcast, Swain and I dive into the making of the movie, discuss the acting career of Roy Scheider as the prototypical everyman, and make comparisons to similar 80s-era television shows like Airwolf, Knight Rider, and Hardcastle and McCormick. We even poke fun at the short-lived television spinoff of Blue Thunder, starring Dana Carvey, Dick Butkus, and Bubba Smith. I'm Adrian Johnson. Swin and I will be the ones wearing hats with Jaffo on them as we play back the underrated 80s action film, Blue Thunder. What brings you to air support? Kind of like the idea of it. No guns, no kicking in doors, and, you know, just... Quiet. Oh, yeah. For Frank Murphy, policing the air has its ups. Hustle bear support. And downs. Got a runaway. Well, I just wanted to say, sir, that that was my fault. I talked Murphy into taking us there. You're supposed to be stupid, son. Don't abuse the privilege. Roy Scheider is Frank Murphy, a lone wolf. Freeze! Bozo, how many regulars come in the front door with a key? Who's about to become a guinea pig. I thought it was illegal to arm police helicopters. Well, that would depend on the circumstances, wouldn't it? Columbia Pictures presents Blue Thunder. A flying arsenal that hears through walls, sees in the dark, and thinks your thoughts. Wherever you look, the guns follow. It was designed for war-torn countries. One civilian dead for every ten terrorists. That's an acceptable ratio, unless you're one of the civilians. It was assigned to American cities. You're talking about ground control from the air? That's what this special detail is all about. They told Murphy to test it. They didn't tell him what it was for. Doesn't have these coppers and you could run the whole damn country. Who was behind it? Where are we? Federal building. Really? Hey, you want to find out what's going on in there? We certainly do. Hey, you gotta do me a favor. I want you to pick up a package for me. Why they chose him. Uh, he's totally unsuitable for our purpose. Don't stop for anything or anybody. For why they changed their minds. You turn the face of a good old fight. They had the ultimate weapon and the perfect plan. But Murphy stole their thunder.
Man, re rewatching this movie and actually kind of going back to the you know the thrillers of the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. Th this movie really made me long for those those films, man. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. You know, just you know, you have a, a protagonist, and you know the conspiracy or the uh, conspiracy thriller or the action crime thriller, and I guess this one is kind of a kind of a little bit of both. Yeah, but um, but yeah, just uh, movies like uh, Nighthawks, mm, mm. you know, Body Double, and uh, do, did you ever see FX? Oh uh, yeah, and in fact, there was a sequel, FX Two. Yeah, yeah, with Brian yeah. Dennehy yeah. and, uh, and the other dude. Yeah, FX. <laughs> yeah, Brian Brown was that his name? I I want to say yes for whatever reason that sounds correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It seems like I I know I remembered him from Cocktail and then from this, you know, from uh from FX, but um you know and uh someone watch over me mm. later on you know like Sea of Love and Presumed Innocent, mm -hmm. uh, Pacific Heights. We talked. I think you and I even talked about maybe doing a uh, a rewatch uh, or a, a playback of uh, Revenge with Kevin Costner and uh, Madeline Stowe and, uh, and Anthony Quinn. Yeah, mm -hmm. Tony Scott directed. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Tibby. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just a bunch of them, man. Um, you know, as we're going to discuss, as far as uh, Roy Scheider is concerned in Blue Thunder, you know, the kind of every man or the the wrong man or the wrong woman. You know, in a situation where they've got to, you know, they've got to prove their innocence at any cost. And, um, you know, and, and, and they may have like a few kind of mild allies, but it's it's almost, you know, almost diehardish in a sense that, you know, they're the only ones who can actually, you know, uh, uh, you know, pierce the veil and, 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 and expose the conspiracy and, 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 and prove their innocence. So, um, yeah, man, just just great, man. And I was going to add one more thing, you know. A movie like Blue Thunder is indicative of that period of the 80s for, you know, one thing, you know, the vehicle as the star of the movie, as the big selling point. I mean, the early 80s, especially, is replete with them. Knight Rider, uh, the van from A-Team, Airwolf, uh, you have the DeLorean from Back to the Future. You know, mm -hmm. just over and over and over again, you see where the vehicle, we, oh, the, um, the Ferrari from Magnum P.I. And then, uh, at a lesser degree, that red car from Hardcastle and McCormick. <laughs> 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 Don't nobody remember that joint. I used to love that shit. But, uh, yeah, it holds so many genres, you know, by the tail, so to speak, you know, and that being a main one. I remember when Blue Thunder was out, I didn't see it originally until it became like an ABC um, Sunday night movie or something like that years later, you know. But I remember there was a Blue Thunder toy out of, of the actual helicopter. Oh, yeah. Oh, as yeah. it was for a lot of those, you know, vehicles like that. We may not have been old enough to watch uh, certain movies with that stuff in it, but we could play with the toys. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's just, it's just really really cool how it it really straddled so many um different facets you know of being a thriller being a technological thriller being an action movie being you know just so many different things and like you said playing off of that whole thing of the vehicle or uh some kind of a, a high-tech something as the, as the center of the film additionally you got uh you had later on uh firefox with clint eastwood 
That's right. That's right. Same year, in fact. Same year. And then also, uh, of course, Top Gun mm-hmm. and uh, an Iron Eagle, yo. Oh, uh, and Iron Eagle 2 <laughs> and Iron Eagle 3. There was even Iron Eagle 4, yo. <laughs> yes, yo. All them Iron Eagles, yo. <laughs> that was that was that's crazy, man. But yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You know that, and it seems as if there was a video game that came out shortly after this. It wasn't called Blue Thunder, but they actually used a still from the movie as part of their production art for the video games, like Thunder Blaze or. Yes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I think I think it was Thunderblade. There was a, a game for the Sega Genesis called Thunderblade, if I am not mistaken. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah but I yeah I recall that too. And even and I guess we'll talk about a little maybe a little bit later on the uh, the short lived uh, Blue Thunder TV show. Really, I didn't realize there was a TV show. Oh snap! <laughs> what? Yeah, we'll talk. We'll get to it later. I mean, it's it's not worth even seeking out on YouTube. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But uh, but uh, yeah, there was a Blue Thunder TV show. Maybe it came out like a year or so after the film. Yeah. Uh, so so the you know the the studio and the production were definitely trying to capitalize upon the uh, the success of the movie. But yeah, for anyone who has not seen Blue Thunder, it was released in 1983. Mm-hmm. Stars Roy Scheider, Candy Clark. Daniel Stern, uh, Warren Oates, uh, Malcolm McDowell. Catch you later. <laughs> yeah, exactly with the with the with the finger guns, yo. And uh, <laughs> and then we had some some other great character actors in the movie, uh, like uh, Joe Santos, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Bernard, and Edward and Ed Bernard. But um, anyway, you know, like we're discussing, yeah, it's kind of a, an action conspiracy thriller. Basically, Roy Scheider is he is a an, an air support pilot for the uh, for the Los Angeles County Police Department. Although they don't call it that, they call it uh, the Metropolitan Police Department because LA County wouldn't give them wouldn't give them the rights to to use their name in the movie. So they called him the Metropolitan Police Department. But he works in air support and he's training a guy and he's asked to test this high tech helicopter for the military. And in the process of doing so, he gets sucked into this conspiracy and then it becomes kind of life and death mm-hmm. at the uh, at the end of the movie. But written by Dan O'Bannon, yo. Yes. Yes. Who we've, we've talked about on the show before and talking about like Alien and Total Recall. Yes. Mm-hmm. He wrote both of those and he co-wrote the movie with uh, Don Jacoby, who actually went on to write uh, Arachnophobia and Vampires. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they, they had some. They had a little bit of a pedigree, you know, as far as that's concerned. And even the uh, the director of the film, John Badham, and you and I talked about this the other day. You know, he directed Saturday Night Fever and War Games. War Games, which came out that same year, nineteen eighty three. That's right. And then later on, he directed uh, Stakeout with uh, Emilio Estevez and uh, and Richard Dreyfuss. But um, the movie was released uh, specifically on on May thirteenth, in nineteen eighty three. And it was the number one film in the United States the weekend that it opened. It actually knocked Flashdance out of the number one spot. <laughs> and uh, for the two months it was in theaters, it, it, it made like $42 million and took in about another $21 million on video rentals and then, you know, later on DVDs. Uh, and had, had probably had a pretty good life after that in terms of uh, that aftermarket man but but you said you probably saw this on like uh tbs or on uh one of the local stations with commercial breaks and whatnot yeah it was actually abc i remember it specifically i can even hear their voiceover we now return to the abc sunday night movie blue 
Thunder. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was always a Sunday night movie for whatever reason. So yeah, of course it was truncated for language and <laughs> definitely nudity. You know what I'm saying? But I just remember even seeing it in those little bits. You know, mm-hmm. when you're a young kid, especially a young boy, you're fascinated by you know the cool high tech stuff. Especially if you grew up in the '80s like we did. It was like, oh wow, man, that looks cool. And I'm telling you, boy. I turned back into like a five or six year old watching this again when they go out to like the uh, the testing grounds, right? And they're like, and here it comes now, and out of the sun comes blue. <laughs> None of that shit was my yes. Ooh, that shit was yes, hard. Yes, yo. Yes, yo. <laughs> it was it was like a Bill Sinkevich uh uh, uh painting, oh. yo, with the sun behind it, almost like a like 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 the Japanese flag. And you know, and it was just baked in, in red and, and, and burnt umber, and then you know it's, it's all in silhouette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had a majesty to it that was really like, okay, this is they're working this, they're selling this. Oh man, did they? Oh, I was like, oh shit! And then from that point on, rewatching it again, I was all in. I was like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm six years old again. Yeah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I, I, I saw this on cable first, probably the early days of like HBO and Showtime, and because you know that was really all you had back then. Uh, maybe later on the movie channel, and then of course, in typical Swain fashion, I you know I got the VHSs and put the two machines together and they taped it and had a copy of it. But yeah, I want to say this was one of the early ones where I really became a fan of the thriller. You know what I mean? Mm. Like mm-hmm. it's not a traditional action movie where there's punching and shooting and jumping off of bridges and off of buildings and leaping through windows and, and that sort of thing. And it's not a, uh, it's not a crime movie like the French Connection, which Roy Scheider was actually in, or uh, something like that. You know, it really was like, okay, you know, I'm the guy. I know the secret. They're out to get me. And it was, you know, it was very much like, um, what's the what's the movie with uh, with uh, Cary Grant that Alfred Hitchcock directed? Is it North by Northwest? Where's the Where's the wrong man? That's right. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, this average, not an average guy, but this guy who gets sucked into this conspiracy, and you know, and then it all kind of. You know, uh, you know, everything just, you know, you're on the edge. Like you said, rewatching this, I was still on the edge of the couch like, ooh, yeah, ooh, you know, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, just just a fun action thriller. And um, and of course, I knew Roy Scheider from Jaws and from French Connection. And, And I think even after seeing this, you know, there was no there was no Internet at the time, you know, so there was no way to Google it. But I think somebody ended up telling me about like 52 pickup. Okay. And so I went and rented. I think the guy at the video store might have told me, hey, he was in another movie you might like. And it was in 52 pickup was the movie, which, you know, has a whole kind of a porn uh, kind of a connection. And, you know, Clarence Williams, the third and uh, that weird guy in the movie. Yeah. Hey, what's going on? Slick. Let me tell you something. Slick. You know, the, uh, <laughs> the really the really bad guy. But um, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, some of the actors in this movie, man, um, as far as uh, other things that they've been in. Were you aware? Because I didn't realize it at the time. You know, Warren Oates is a uh, character actor who had done a ton of Westerns. Oh, yes. I I love Warren Oates. I love Warren Oates because I'm a big Sam Peckinpah fan. And Mm -hmm. Oates was one of his guys, you know, from from way back in like 62 with Ride the High Country. But 
you know, I know I knew Oates more from obviously the Wild Bunch in '69. He was great in that, and also bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia in '73 or '74, which he was also good in. And that was almost like he was the alter ego of Peck and Paw. You know, people suspected. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, mm-hmm. Oates has always been very, very solid. Like he's one of those character actors that if you put him in the cast. You know, you know, you he's like the cleanup hitter, you know, in baseball. Put him in that fourth slot, he going he to bring a hit every time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As the character of uh, Captain Braddock uh, in this movie. And, you know, the, the thing that I had, only thing that I had seen him in that I remembered him from was the, uh, the drill instructor in Stripes. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, that's what most people probably know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I knew. You know, you know, where he's, you know, he's, he was at odds basically with Bill Murray's character. And uh, but that's what I kind of knew him from. But uh, as far as Candy Clark, you know, I think you and I talked about, you know, she was in American Graffiti. Yeah. And she showed up in the uh, in the late 2000s in uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. OK. Mm-hmm. And she was also in uh, At Close Range, which we talked about uh, on the uh, the Rural Crimes uh, episode as well. That's right. Yeah. But uh, but uh, also Daniel Stern, who uh, played uh, 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 Lyman Good. Very, very pre Home Alone. Very pre City Slickers. <laughs> but um, you know, as uh, really great as Lyman Good or Jaffo as uh, yeah, as Jaffo. He, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as he kind of <laughs> And then let's talk about Malcolm McDowell, yo. Yes, let's. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in the movie, for again, for people who don't know, in the movie, Malcolm McDowell is kind of like uh, Roy Scheider's nemesis. Roy Scheider plays Frank Murphy, the air support guy, and uh, Malcolm McDowell is is a is a colonel in the military, who um, who Murphy served with for a while, and he's kind of like his nemesis. Um, they they don't like each other. They didn't like each other, you know, twenty years earlier in, in Vietnam. And they don't like each other now working on this this Blue Thunder project. Right. But um, but Malcolm McDowell, you know, we all know from A Clockwork Orange. He was actually in Caligula, too. I didn't I didn't remember that. But McDowell's my favorite performance by McDowell is in Time After Time. Time After Time. Isn't that the Christopher Reeve movie? Uh no, well that was somewhere in time I think. Oh okay, there we go. I get my times mixed up. <laughs> Very easy to do. No, time after time was a movie. It was a blending of the mythology of Jack the Ripper and the Time Machine. Damn. Okay. And um, Malcolm McDowell is. Uh, I want to say he's a he's a policeman, mm-hmm. but he's going to a ho- to the house of, let's say, an H.G. Wells type who says, "Hey, I've got this invention. You got to come see it." And it's a time machine. But what they don't know is is that Jack the Ripper this is in England. Jack the Ripper is in the party and the police have chased him to the house. And when he gets it, he runs into the room, runs and jumps into the time machine and goes back, goes, uh, goes uh, uh, forward in time. And so Malcolm McDowell chases after him and he goes forward in time chasing Jack the Ripper. So he's chasing Jack the Ripper around in kind of like modern day New York City. I, I think I have that plot pretty much right. So it's the Terminator. Huh? So it's the Terminator. <laughs> it's the Terminator. It kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. Damn, you're right. Damn, you are so right. Okay. But uh, so he's chasing Jack the Ripper in modern day New York. 
And while he's there, he meets uh, Mary Steenburgen's character. Uh-huh. They kind of fall in love. He catches Jack the Ripper. And she kind of plays the same part she played in Back to the Future 2, where at the end of the movie, she says, I'm in love with you. So she travels back in time to the 18-whatevers to be with him. In the same way that her character did in Back to the Future 2 with Doc Brown. Yeah. And I was and I was like, okay, wow. But anyway, they met on that movie. He and Steve Merger met on that movie and got married. Oh, wow. And Yeah, and they were married at the time that he was making Blue Thunder, as a matter of fact. So that's just kind of a weird... A weird bit of trivia that no one, you know, should really care about, but but me and you know me and you, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and she was even saying that when they were making the movie, and uh, and and McDowell's character was uh, he was deathly afraid of flying. She she couldn't believe he signed on to do the movie, and she said she couldn't believe that the director talked him into actually getting into a uh, you know a helicopter seat. And uh, and he would puke and like he was fucked up by the whole experience. But, you know, he got through it, of course. Yeah. But, you know, I, I will mention this and I, and I hope I'm not stepping on your toes, man. No. One of the most incongruent parts of the movie. OK, is Malcolm McDowell is a colonel in the U.S. military, in the U.S. Army or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Why does he have a British accent? And he's not even trying to hide it. He's not even trying to tamp it down. No, no. No. At first, I was thinking before they implicitly said, yes, he's a colonel in the United States Army. I was thinking maybe he was a, a an attache or a liaison with <laughs> That's you know, the British RAF yeah. or something. <laughs> and then when they said U.S. Army, I was like, what? Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That part was, it's, it, he wasn't even doing like a Brian Cox. Yeah. Where Cox will be like, it's kind of British, but kind of not. You know, you're not sure. Like, maybe he's just very proper. Maybe he's an American, but he's just very, very proper. <laughs> but same here. I was, I was like, okay, maybe he was like a British, you know, like a cohort. You know, they worked together, but he wasn't like under, you know, under uh, Roy Shot. You know, Roy Shot's character didn't, you know, didn't serve under this guy. That that can't be, can it? You know. But you know what's funny? It, it starts, I don't know if it started the trend, but it continues that trend of the 80s of like, whoever is the heavy in the thriller or action movie piece, they have to have a British or Australian accent and they have to be very implicit and proper when making threats. You know, I shall shoot you out of the sky. You know, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. 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 You yeah. see it in Commando with Bennett. You see it in Die Hard, even though it was an English actor playing a German, but still same difference. You know, you see it replete throughout the 80s, for sure. Mm-hmm. You have to have the accent. Yeah. Definitely that. I guess that's it. That's, and even like in Star Wars, you know, the uh, the English accents, you know, made everybody sound more grand and sinister. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, when they when they had to drop those lines, you know, so to speak. Even James Earl Jones kind of felt Britishy, even though he wasn't having a, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I've, I've altered the, the, the terms of the deal. Pray I don't alter it further. You know, he yes, almost exactly. felt like it was like a mid-Atlantic or like a, like a, a pseudo-British accent. So, you know. <laughs> this movie is, as we've discussed, is action, is crime, and it is a thriller. But it, it really kind of, I guess, the subtext of the movie is about uh, the government trying to invade your privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, in order to protect you, quote-unquote, you know, we have to invade your privacy and, and to what lengths they're willing to go. 
you know, this this helicopter, you know, most of the air support or all of the air support in uh, L.A. County, you know, they're not armed. They don't have weapons. You know, they're just there to assist the police and say, hey, here's where your person is or, you know, to find somebody or what have you. And um, in this particular helicopter, Blue Thunder, which is its code name. Right. Um, you know, it's got it's got weapons on it. It's got uh, uh, heat seeking or heat heat sensitive cameras that can, you know, X-ray cameras and shit. Uh, it's got microphones that can hear through walls. It can go in silent mode and just kind of hover outside your window without you hearing it. And it's super fast. You know, it's probably, you know, three or four times faster than the average helicopter. You know, and, and it reminded me of like it was a superhero almost. You know what I'm saying? Like you almost had superpowers in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like even like an Iron, like an Iron Man kind of a, uh, you know, like almost like Iron Man in a way. But um, a couple of things you mentioned about the uh, the incongruence uh, incongruencies in the in the movie. And, you know, this movie is definitely, like you said, it is, it's packed with, you know, movie magic and coincidences where it's like, hey, you know, and it's like, okay, well, all right. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, we'll go with it. Yeah, but they sell the movie so well in terms of its pacing and in terms of the dialogue and in terms of the dynamics between the characters that, you know, pretty quickly into the film, you don't care about those inconsistencies or whatever. You're just like, ah, whatever, I'm along for the ride, quite, you know, quite literally, but... Yes. One of the th- a couple of things that I noticed uh, rewatching this was, you know, inside of the first 20, 20 minutes or so, you know, when Murphy, uh, when Schreider's character Murphy meets up with Daniel Stern's character Lyman Good and they get, you know, partnered up, you know, we as the audience members kind of want to hang out with the cranky but experienced Murphy in the same way that Lyman Good does. That's right. He's, uh, you know, his kind of seen it all, done it all attitude is really charming to a newbie. You know, and I've had that experience and you've, we, you and I have talked about this before, you know, where, you know, you work with someone who has a lot of years doing something and you almost kind of want to do like a Vulcan mind tap and just kind of suck all the stuff. in. you know, like you, you're eager to get everything that they have, you know, this information. Well, this this person has the knowledge. This person has the experience. They've seen it. They can she- teach me. They can show me. And so you're almost it's almost like a. uh uh, like you want to devour them to a certain extent. And, and there's there's a little bit of that with Lyman Good, where he's really, really charmed, you know, by this, you know, this kind of experienced, tenured guy, you know, who uh, who seems a little bit cranky and maybe even, you know, kind of losing it. I think they even imply that he has PTSD. Yes. Um, but I, I kind of liked that, you know, early, on, early in the movie, that's kind of what brings you along, because then Lyman Good can ask the questions about the job, and about flying and about working with the cops on the ground. And then it becomes an, an, an opportunity for, uh, you know, for exp- expository uh, exposition, mm-hmm. you know, for us to learn more about, you know, what it is that they do and, and then how, the, you know, that's going to affect the rest of the movie. You know what I mean? That's right. But, yo, what did you think about the whole because this 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 didn't uh, <clears throat> uh, this this wasn't cool, man. I had forgotten about that part where they're kind of uh, flying at night and they're peeping in that. uh that woman's window and she's she's nude and doing yoga and it, like hovering outside and they were like okay yeah like what did you what did you think of that seeing that again did it strike you as like wait wait whoa oh, that's a little <laughs> it, you know <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm of two minds in this yes i know today it's wrong it's always wrong it's always been wrong but in the context of the 80s Man, there are so many 80s movies that are replete with that. Like, you can name them, man. 
Uh, I can't think of any specifics off the top of my head, but you've seen that scene before in a number of 80s movies. Like the cops would say, oh, well, she's putting on a show tonight and they're on like a stakeout or whatnot. But they know like at this certain time every night, if they look in that window of that high rise or at this house or whatnot, oh man, she's putting on a show and whatever, you know, fan service, if you will, you know, for the guys in the audience. I get that. Right. And then the other part of me was like, Dang, that's crazy. It's crazy to be reminded of how hard rated R used to be, you know, even for a movie like this. You know, even in uh, R-rated movies today, they wouldn't do something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. Or they would do it and they would do it in a different way or there would be a consequence to uh, to the behavior. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It's like seeing it. I was just like, OK, wow, I, I didn't quite remember the whole peeping Tom thing. But like you said, you can go back to uh, well, we mentioned uh, another one of John Badham's uh, move, the movies he directed, Stakeout. Mm-hmm. You know where Richard Dreyfuss is starting to he's looking at Madeline Stowe in her house, and he starts kind of you know lusting after her at first, and then he starts kind of falling in love for in love with her once he actually gets to talk to her and interact with her. But I mean, but he's peeping through the window through binoculars or a te- uh, you know through a uh, a telescope. And they're kind of watching her, you know, and same thing in Porky's, you know, looking through a hole and, you know, in the shower, girls shower to see naked girls taking, you know, taking showers together. And anyway, what were your thoughts, man, on the uh, the Vietnam flashback sequences? Because to me, those were a little silly, yo. A bit. And just the fact that, you know, the movie was moving along so briskly that it's almost they like they forgot to deepen that piece that they kept showing. Like they showed it like two or three times and you're wondering, okay, well, what about this made uh, Roy Scheider's character, Frank Murphy, have these flashbacks to that particular experience in his service over in Vietnam? Right. You you keep wondering. Uh, I think a scene was needed to where uh, Malcolm McDowell's character was saying something like, we have the prisoner or whatnot. He's not telling us what we want to know because this is documented that helicopter um, interrogators would actually do this. They would capture NVA or whatnot, get the information they wanted or not needed, and they say, okay, we're done with you, and toss them out. Or they would use that as a a threatening tactic for the other prisoners that they had to elicit information. Mm. And I was thinking maybe they were going to do something like that. And when they didn't, you know, expound on that, I was like, okay, I think that's just a device just to show that in short, he's tortured by his experience in Vietnam. You know, he thinks he's losing it. So I was like, so that, like you said, that's one of those things where you're like, ah, uh, okay, all right, yeah, the movie's already going. Okay, no problem. All right, right, just, right, right, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. <laughs> and then, like, the first one or two times that they show it, you just see them throw this prisoner out of the helicopter, and it's obviously a dummy. I mean, it's, you know, quite obviously a dummy. It's not even moving. And then the last time they show the sequence, you find out that it was Cochrane. Uh, Malcolm McDowell's character who did toss this person out and that you know and, and that's another reason why you know Murphy and he are at odds and have been since their time serving together uh, in Vietnam so yeah one thing I thought too man was uh, Candy Clark plays Katie when she first showed up I wasn't sure if she was his girlfriend right his ex-wife I didn't know what their the nature of their relationship was because it didn't seem like boyfriend girlfriend and then she's bringing this kid, and I'm like, okay, is this his kid? Is he in the middle of a divorce? Why is she bringing this kid over at three o'clock in the damn morning? You know. Yeah. In fact, she even asked, I believe, in the in the actual movie, like, "What are we, Frank? 
you know, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny. And, and again, that's like indicative of those 80s movies. You know, you have the protagonist who's in some type of strained relationship, you know, usually with their um, female better half. You know what I'm saying? And it's strained to the point to where, oh, man, you know, we're, we're, we're just not seeing eye to eye right now. But at some point in the movie, he's going to need her you know, to help him uncover whatever it is or need her assistance. And in that way, they'll, they'll find some type of um, be, the beginnings of bonding or rekindling that relationship or something. You know what I'm saying? Most yeah. definitely, most definitely. And, and the, the needing her at the end of the movie is forecast pretty broadly in, in the beginning of the movie where they're riding together in the car and she makes a U-turn on a one-way street and goes back because she missed her turn. And so you realize, okay, obviously this is going to come back later where her crazy driving is actually going to be of help to him as opposed to, you know, him white knuckling it, you know, as she she cuts through traffic. But speaking, I mentioned earlier about the movie doing well on uh, video rentals, man. It was kind of cool to see the huge three quarter inch tapes. Yeah, <laughs> that the uh, news that the news stations used to use back in the day looked like a damn Merriam-Webster's dictionary, <laughs> you know, this big fat, you know, tape, and you yes. know, and they had that in the helicopter, for, you know, with the data and all that, and then Lyman Good steals it, and the thing that I was wondering about was, he said, you know, he calls Frank and he leaves Frank this message, and Frank actually gets the message uh, posthumously because Lyman Good has been killed at that point, right? And he says, yeah, I says I didn't want to bring it back to my house, so I hid it. And I'm thinking, okay, where did he hide it? In a dumpster behind, you know, the, the drive-in I go to. I think they emptied the, the trash can on Thursday, so you got to go get it today. Yeah, damn, man. <laughs> I was just like, God. I thought the same thing. It was like, that's real, real, real specific. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and random as F, yo. I was like, but I guess, you know, he couldn't leave it something like in a locker at the bus, the bus station and then get the key to anybody in time. So he was just on his way home, so he just stops off, ditches it, Goes and gets his groceries. Yeah. And then, of course, when he comes in his house, that's when the bad guys are waiting on him and they get him. And what did you think about that whole sequence there? Because I thought that was well done in the sense of it was, you know, when they the bad guys captured Lyman Good, it was riveting. Mm-hmm. You know, they broke his finger. You were like, okay, these guys, these guys are not playing. Mean business, yeah. And and even his his attempt to escape, you know, was like. You know, like, oh, my God, he might actually get away from it. get away, you know, with the handcuffs and everything. But what did you think about that whole sequence and how it ended with the, uh, you know, as it ended? Yeah. You know, that's one of those things, you know, to where those and I hate to say classic because, you know, they're not these movies aren't that old. I mean, they're approaching 40 years old, obviously. Right, but, right. you know, these the, the movies like the thrillers and stuff of like the 80s, you know, when they were directed by solid directors that who aren't household names, but they made great films like John Badham, uh, Andrew Davis. Um, there's a guy named Bruce Malmuth who directed um, Nighthawks. Mm-hmm. Just directors like that who knew how to direct scenes like this. Like when he comes in, Badham really has a handle on, you know, this type of shady dealing. Like, he's in his apartment, he comes in, and they kind of jump him, and they got him cornered, they, they you know, kind of hem him up and everything. Where's the, where's the tape? Where's this and that? He, Batman in particular, really excels at that, as you can see in, like, war games and movies like that, mm-hmm. to where there's a perceived threat that is real. No mustache twirling, no, it's really more like these are toughs. 
These are actual toughs who look like they will hurt you if you don't give them what they want. You know, so everything about the, the filming of the scene, the lighting of the scene, the actual uh, performances in that just really work. And as far as his getaway, it made it seem believable because we like Lyman good. You know what I'm saying? And it's something that we would try to do as well if we were in his shoe. Right. You know, so during that whole thing, we're rooting for him. Get away. Just get away. And he's making his way down the street and everything. And, you know, he bumps into it. There's always a bicyclist coming by in every <laughs> 80s movie that they have to. They're almost yeah. going to get away. And, boom, boom, boom. and then <laughs> that creepy looking guy who's like creepy looking on purpose drives that old, <laughs> that old beat up beater of a car, that lemon of a car, <laughs> that same nondescript car that you've seen in every episode of A-Team, Rockford Files, Stopsky and Hutch, Hunter, <laughs> <laughs> just runs them over, yo. It's like, dang, and kept going. Yep. I was like, God, dang, yeah, man, no remorse. Just it was rough, rough too. And the, and the way they shot it, you know, he's running, he bumps it. He he trips over the person on the bike. So he's on his knees. He gets up. He turns around. You see the headlights coming his way, and his head just kind. His face just kind of goes blank, like he's accepted his fate. Right. And they just and the and dude just runs his ass up. <laughs> and uh and that's it. You know. And yes. it was at that point when Murphy, you know, he comes to the scene and he sees them zipping Lyman Good up in the bag. Of course, again, more movie magic. He just happens to show up as they're zipping Lyman Good up. And then he realizes, okay, this is truly life and death, and I've got to, you know, I've got to take matters in my own hands in order to, to, uh, to clear my name. Right, and you know, in fact, it's uh, it's a callback to our previous episode as far as like the mentor. You know, uh, Murphy would would be the mentor, obviously, to Lyman Good, and mm -hmm. sometimes when it's in that type of relationship, the mentor has to die so that the mentee or the student can go forward. In this case, though. The student dies to show the mentor, yes, this is very serious now, okay? They're willing to kill this young dude to get at you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's real now, you know? Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely was. And I didn't even think about it in terms of the mentor-mentee relationship as, you know, as it relates back to our uh, our previous discussion. But, you, yeah, you're definitely right. Um, the ending, man, what— so here's the thing that throughout the course of the movie, you know, uh, Schneider's character, Frank Murphy, he's 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 got a watch with a timer on it and he closes his eyes and sets the timer and he tries to count to 20 or 30 or whatever, because he had heard that, you know, for if one of the signs that someone is losing it is, is if they close their eyes and and try to count to 20, you know, 20 seconds or 30 seconds, they don't know the difference between five seconds and 20 seconds mm -hmm. or five seconds and 30 seconds. And that their their timing will be way, way off. So he's doing this constantly throughout the course of the movie to try to check himself to see if he actually is going crazy or losing it. And maybe, you know, suffering from some PTSD from his uh, his days in the uh, in Vietnam. But yeah, when he leaves the, the, the chopper on the train tracks, I was like, well, maybe he is crazy because that was some crazy shit. No, I, but I understood why he did it. It's like, man. It's, it's like one of those classic tropes of this weapon will never be used again for evil. Yeah. yeah. That type of thing. It's like breaking the sword over your knee. This sword has been used to cause evil throughout the land. It's now destroyed. 
you know, that type of thing. And I love that. And obviously the very end has the classic 80s freeze frame. And for some reason though. Oh, yeah, yo, yeah. Can I also can I also mention this about the ending too? I don't know what it is about those early 80s techno thrillers, and I don't know about you, but that synthy yeah. mixed with some type of an orchestral score, that works for me. So when he's leaving and the, the um, train is, you know, wrecked, Blue Thunder has destroyed it, and it has that freeze frame, and it kind of looks like, um, uh, almost like it's being monitored. Not Not him being monitored, but like, the freeze frame almost turns to like a, a a a monitored display and you see like you know the overlay of like you know the computer matrix lettering blue thunder starry roy snyder that type of thing i i was a sucker for that i was like man that just got me like right here just like that works man and then the synthy score comes up like yeah yeah i think you're right about that and i think um I think maybe Dwight might have brought this up on a previous conversation we were having about how movies in the 80s would end in the freeze frame at the end of the uh, at the end of the film. It would just lock in and that would be the uh, the last thing that you saw. But yeah, but I just thought it was crazy because it's like, OK, he could have derailed the train and killed everybody on that train. Yo, he's like leaving this 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 super, you know, techno helicopter. I was just like, it just seemed weird to me. Uh, definitely a weird choice. But I get what you're saying. It was like, again. You know, Murphy throughout the course of the movie is like, yeah, they just they're in everybody's privacy. And, you know, and, and so you, you kind of know where the movie is going before it actually gets to that particular that particular point. But also, too, yeah, man, with the uh, the synthy kind of orchest- orchestral uh, uh, music scores. Yes. A lot of that 80s, those 80s movies, I want to say um, to live and die in L.A. had some of that. Mm-hmm. Definitely John Carpenter's films, you know, starting back in the 70s all the way into the 80s. Oh, yeah. Of course. And he was the one who's actually uh, doing that. And then um, uh, Risky Business in the 80s as well. The uh, The soundtrack was done by, a, I believe the band was called Tangerine Dream. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very kind of synthy and and, 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 and and mellow and kind of chilled out. Yeah, they also did Thief as well. That's they also which had that same type of synthy score. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of that in there. And there was a lot of it too in uh in Manhunter, uh, another Michael Mann movie, uh, Thief and uh, and Manhunter. But oh uh, yeah, uh, as far as Roy Scheider is concerned, man, because I know you wanted to talk a little bit about his uh, his acting career and him as the prototypical, you know, the everyman, you know, who's he's good looking, but he's not super handsome. He's smart, but he's not the smartest guy in the room, and he can probably throw hands. But, you know, he's not like, you know, uh, he's not like Rambo or he's not like, uh, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger character or, you know, he's not someone who's going to do martial arts. You know, he's just this kind of average, above average guy, but an average guy nonetheless. Right. Yeah. You know, he's he's the type of guy. And I've worked with a couple of people. You probably have, you know, a couple of um, guys like him to where he, he's quiet. He has a quiet confidence. You know, he's professional. He knows what he's doing. If you ask him a question, he's going to answer it for you, you know, in an unassuming way. But if his hand is forced in terms of a situation really needing to be handled, you know, I I don't mean a violent situation or anything, but in a professional setting, he's going to know what to do to take care of it. And that's the sense that I get from Scheider. 
you know, I think I called him. He was like the Humphrey Bogart of the 80s, the late 70s and the 80s. Oh. He has this very sad, sad kind of face, mm-hmm. but so relatable, so relatable and so unassuming. You know what I'm saying? Like all those roles that you've seen him in. He's not transformative, but he takes the role enough to where it works. And he seems like a different character every time. You know what I'm saying? And uh, just, yeah, he's just very appealing. I, I can see why he remained a, a big box office attraction, you know, throughout that whole period. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Roy Scheider, of course, I believe Jaws was the first time I ever saw him in anything. Okay. And then I saw him in French Connection after that. Mm-hmm. 52 Pickup I mentioned. Yeah. He, he was excellent in, in Sorcerer, you know. Oh, yeah, and Sorcerer, uh, a great crime thriller from uh, set over in, was it South America? Yes, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. South America back in, back in the 70s. He was in, I'm, I think I vaguely remember him in Marathon Man. Oh, yes, yeah, he was in there briefly. Mm-hmm. But the last thing I saw him in that I really liked, and he, he didn't have a lot to do in the movie, was uh, he was in uh, that movie I told you about, Romeo is Bleeding. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, which is a good movie to check out. Uh, kind of weird and freaky in some in some ways. <laughs> but yeah, but Schreider and Schreider, I didn't realize that he was the big draw for this film. Like he was the star power name, other than the helicopter itself, Blue Thunder. He was the reason why the movie got green lit because it was coming off of two Jaws movies that were both successful. Yeah, uh, and he had he had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for French Connection. He at the time was someone who was you know he was a big star. He wasn't you know he wasn't Robert Redford uh, or Paul Newman big star, but he was a big star uh, back in those days. Yeah. But as far as some trivia, and I've mentioned a couple of things, uh, uh, L.A. County wouldn't let uh, let them use the, uh, their name in the movie, even though it's shot. They referenced the canyon and the 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 bridge in L.A. and all the neighborhoods. Yes, and he flies. And he exactly. And he flies past L.A. County headquarters, police headquarters. That one building, you know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, but they they wouldn't let him use the name, so they they referred to their. Uh, to the police department as the Metropolitan Police Department, and he was in the Astro Division as opposed to uh, yeah. Air Support or whatever L.A. County Astro really calls Division. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mentioned uh, Malcolm McDowell was terrified of flying, and he he got sick. Um, Mary Steenburgen, she said, you know, she couldn't. She, she like I said, she said she couldn't even believe that they got him to do this movie. Warren Oates died mm-hmm. as this movie was in post production, and so they uh, they dedicated it to him. And as mentioned earlier, you know, he was in a ton of Westerns and a character actor who'd been around since, I think, the 50s. Yes. Uh, by, by the time he, you know, he showed up in this and in Stripes. And, um, and but, yeah, they, they ended up dedicating the film to, uh, you know, to the late Warren Oates. And one other small thing to add in there, just just real quick. Uh, the same year that Warren Oates died is the same year, I believe, that Sam Peckinpah died. So there's that Oates and Peckinpah connection there. Wow. I think Peckinpah's last film was the Osterman Weekend, also in 83. So they died that same year. So it's, it's crazy how, how that ended up working out, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah longtime collaborators who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who ended up passing in the same year. But um, one last bit of trivia uh, that I uncovered was uh, Mario Machado. Okay. He plays the TV reporter in the movie. But he himself was a real-life TV reporter. <laughs> and he's playing himself in the film. But 
if you look at his IMDb, Mario Machado has played a TV reporter in Brian's Song. He played a TV reporter in RoboCop. Mm -hmm. He played a TV reporter in Scarface, which also came out this same year, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's right. You're correct. 1983. And he played a TV reporter in Rocky Three. Yes. He has been in so many movies playing basically a version of himself, but apparently he was a TV reporter and then kind of became an actor, you know, quote unquote actor, you know, <laughs> uh, along along the way. It's funny you mentioned that that aspect, man, because there are a lot of in the 80s, a lot of like movies, mostly and I'll say it mostly lower budget movies that use like actual television reporters. Mm hmm. Like, I know down here, there was a movie filmed in 85 called Invasion USA with Chuck Norris. Mm. And they actually used two television reporters from here in the Atlanta area on camera. Monica Kaufman and John Pruitt. Oh. And it was like, oh, wow, really? Holy crap. Even as a kid, I was <laughs> like, dang, they had a canon movie? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. And the, and the, uh, one of the television reporters as well, he also played a television reporter in The Terminator, like that following year. I, I don't, I don't, I forget if it was Machado or there was another guy that was on the screen too. It was like, he also played a television reporter in Terminator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really funny is, is you can always tell if it's a real reporter or a real anchor person versus an actor playing one of them mm. because you know when they go into that tv reporter talk with the gestures the hand gestures and the certain cadence and a certain way that they deliver the news and the, deliver the story you can tell people who have been seasoned in doing that it, it, it just comes off differently but i can always tell when it's just an actor who's playing a reporter or an anchor person as opposed to uh you know someone who has real chops you're right. You know, uh, you know, doing doing the job. But some other movies that came out in 1983, a few of them we hadn't hadn't discussed. The Outsiders came out in 83. Mm -hmm. uh, National Band Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah. Uh, Risky Business, again, came out in 1983. Mm. Uh, the Dead Zone with Christopher Walken, which is another one of my favorites. Trading Places came out in 1983. Videodrome, if you, if you remember Videodrome. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> the uh, Superman 3, the odious Superman 3 came out <laughs> in 1983. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Wiping, I'm wiping the sweat off my face too, man. Yeah. Ah. Ah. So we're starting oh. to lose it there. <laughs> Return of the Jedi, of course. Uh, Sean Penn's Bad Boys. Yes, which eventually at some point we got to get to because I know you and I are huge, huge fans of that movie for sure. Yeah, I love I love that movie, and I mean, it, I, I don't know if it'll be separate or if we'll probably do a separate episode, but it'll definitely be included uh, when we do like a uh, prison movies. Sure will uh, have a prison movies conversation. Bet on it. But yeah, just last last but not least, well, no, actually last and least, uh, the Blue Thunder TV show I think ran in 1984. Yeah. Who was in that? Oh no! <sighs> Why am I scared? I, I'm scared to even know who you who you go even say was in it, Joe. <laughs> so, I know Dana Carvey was in it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Dana Carvey was in. Dana Carvey was Jaffo. Okay, I, he okay, was Jaffo. I, I thought he was gonna be Frank Murphy. Oh hell no! <laughs> no, it was some other guy who was Frank Murphy, but he was in it. Uh -huh. Dick Buckus was in it. 
okay, I, I'll give you that. I like dick buckets. Yeah, all right. And uh, Bubba Smith, Whoops. the football player turned actor. Yes. Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, you know, you had some non-actors and then Dana Carvey, who was probably more of a stand-up than he was uh, a comedic actor at that point. But it wasn't very good. Oh. It was definitely not very good. And, and, you know, fell right in with, you know, the movies that, uh, and TV shows that you talked about. Uh, Knight Rider, you know, Magnum P.I., Airwolf, you know, uh, you know, Iron Eagle. Yeah. <laughs> and then in uh, uh, what was it? McCormick. Uh, Hard Castle and McCormick. Put some respect Hard on Hard Castle it. and McCormick. Yeah. With the uh, what was it the judge and the race car driver? Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the felon who was a race car driver. Yeah. And he helped him on the cases that fell through the cracks. <laughs> what, what was up with that name? Dude's name was Skid McCormick. <laughs> Skid. <laughs> Skid. Skid. Which has a whole different, you know, different vibe today with Skid Skidmark McCormick. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. Dang. Come on, man. But you know, anyway, that was definitely the time. And you're right, as far as the um, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you know, the focus on vehicles and and the vehicle, you know, like Kit was the star of of, of Night Rider. Of course, it wasn't David Hasselhoff. It was Kit. Yeah, yeah. We we were tuning in every week to see Kit and hear Kit say Michael. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but what were you going to say? I'm sorry, man. I was going to say I just want to add this one last thing um, to it, if I could, just in terms of in the film's third act, the choreography and the cinematography of those flights. Oh yeah, oh yeah, are incredible and still hold up. They're amazing. They're fantastic. Like we mentioned earlier um, in the episode, just about you know them using like the landmarks around the city, you know, around quote unquote Los Angeles. Yeah, but yeah, they go to all the familiar hunts that you've seen in hundreds, hundreds of movies to this very day. The L.A. River, that that one bridge. I forget what street it is, but it's a very specific bridge you know, over the L.A. River and stuff like that. And just the, the cat and mouse chase that was going on and the great use of, like, analog special effects with the real footage. Um, there was rear screen projection. All of it blended pretty well, even though to our trained eyes here in the 21st century, we could tell the difference. But at, but like you said, at that point in the movie, you didn't care. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It was like, this is just exciting. It's entertaining. And the one part that we both agreed on is when the cops have pulled over Candy Clark's character, you know, as she's trying to make her way to the, um, to the TV station with the tape. And she's on that bridge. And she's like, no, no, you got to let me go. I got I to gotta go. I got to go. And the cop's like, no, 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 no. You need to stay right here. You're not going nowhere. And then Blue Thunder just comes up over the edge of the bridge. You just hear, like, the turbines whining. Mm -hmm. That was so badass. And yeah, yeah, yo. that's the type of crowd-pleasing moments that were just so genuine in a lot of those 80s movies. I could sense that that would be the part in the movie in the theater where the crowd would be like, yeah, all right, you know, yeah. Yeah, 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 it comes up, comes up over... Over the, it's like a like a uh, like a uh, uh, like a like a landscape shot. Yes. You just see it come up over the edge of the bridge, 
like a like a bat or something, just kind of you know hovering. Yeah, you're you're right, man. You're right. And 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 the other thing too is is I think if they had done a movie like that today, which there actually was talk of doing a, a reboot of it mm. using a drone oh. instead of an actual helicopter. You know, a lot of that is going to be CGI. A lot of that is going to be, you know, it's going to be uh, created, you know, in, uh, you know, as as an as a VFX, uh, as opposed to, uh, um, you know, shooting it practically. Yeah. And uh, and and you you have to give, like you said, in terms of the the air choreography, if you will, you have to give John Badham credit because. Oh yeah. It's like uh, it's like with artwork. A lot of times with artwork, if we see a bowl of fruit or a landscape. Or uh, some kind of a life drawing in in a, in, a, in a natural setting where there aren't human beings in the picture. Sometimes we kind of get bored with that. You know, the image isn't doesn't connect unless there's a person in there. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, and 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 so in this particular movie, Batum, you know, he's got to shoot basically shots of helicopters swooping and chasing each other. He knows he's only going to use. Five seconds, three seconds, ten seconds to stitch it all together. But he's got to know in his in his mind he's got the shot, and that it's going to be exciting when I put it together. That's easier to do if you got two guys fighting and jumping through a window and falling onto the top of a car, and then they fall out and roll into the street, and then a truck comes and they almost get hit by a truck. That's easy to do with human beings because we've seen that before and we know how that can be exciting and how that can be, you know, uh, like a, a gripping kind of a situation. Yeah, but you know he just had to take. He had to shoot machines flying through the air, and make it feel like a badass fist fight or a car chase or uh, somebody chasing somebody on a motorcycle or the Terminator chasing Sarah Connor and an eighteen wheeler. Mm-hmm. He had to make it feel like that, you know, and uh, and he did a great job of it, man. It's it's a really really fun film uh, as it relates to that, and um, and he he pulled it off, you know, brilliantly, I think. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.